Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. We are back with Dr. Noam Chomsky, who I'm sure needs little introduction to my erudite listeners. Um, so, Dr. Chomsky, I'd like to talk about uh, Israel, Palestine, and, of course, the United States, the third leg on the stool of power. But before we dip into that, uh, you've once talked about uh, Jewish uh, state worship, of course, even outside Israel, and you've compared it to the zeal that underlined Stalinism, Stalinism and fascism. Now, some of the most influential thinkers in my world have been Jewish anarchists, uh, anti-state intellectuals, but there also seems to be this totalitarian streak in Jewish thinking that I think contributes to some of the conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, do you have a theory that explains this divergence uh, in Jewish thinking? Tribal loyalty. Uh, it's perfectly true. There are a fair number of Jews who are uh, liberal, radical, uh, anti-imperialist, and uh, opposed to repression, uh, occupation, state crimes, and so on. But when it comes to Israel, it shuts off. And they... Uh, defend it, uh, whatever it does, maybe mild criticisms. It's a, it's a pretty striking phenomenon, and it's not restricted to Jews in Israel. I think the same is true of uh, uh, ethnic groups in the, in the diaspora quite generally. So, for example, take, say the, take, um, during the period of the um, what they call the Troubles, the really serious uh, British repression and violence and terror in uh, Northern Ireland, there were things I could talk about in Ireland that I couldn't talk about here to an Irish audience, because here they were far more uh, militant and uncompromised. And I think the same is true to a considerable extent in Israel. There's a, a degree of debate and discussion within Israel. Actually, it's declining. But up until recently, there has been uh, that was well beyond uh, what uh, the Jewish community would tolerate here. Right. Now, there is, I think, uh, particularly in America, there's, as you mentioned, quite a bit of filter that goes on. And some of this, of course, is... is um, the result of uh, harassment and, and, and ostracism and social pressure that's put on people. Of course, you yourself, as you've said, until quite recently, you needed a police escort at times to talk about these issues. Um, what sort of um, pressures are brought to bear uh, in America on people who wish to broaden the scope of the debate? Well, for a long time, it was, uh, first of all, it's, just, it's not just true of this issue. It's true on other issues. Uh, when I started to talk about... Uh, the Vietnam War in the early uh, 60s, uh, the uh, vi antagonism and uh, denunciations and violence was pretty extreme. Just to illustrate, uh, Boston, where I live, is a, quite a liberal city. By uh, Our first effort to have a public demonstration against the war on the Boston Common, which is the typical place for, for generations, for demonstrations. Our first effort was in October 1965. Uh, by that time, the U.S. had practically destroyed South Vietnam. Uh, hundreds of thousands of troops were being deployed. Uh, they'd started to bomb North Vietnam. The war was really raging. We had a 
we had a demonstration on the common. It was broken up by violence. Uh, there were, uh, I was supposed to be one of the speakers. None of the speakers could be heard. You take a look at the Boston Globe liberal newspaper the next day. It was full of denunciations of the demonstrators. Uh, we tried a couple of months later to have another demonstration. Uh, we knew we couldn't have it in the public places, so we had it in a church, downtown church. The church was attacked. Uh, it's not. It's not. In the case of Israel-Palestine, it was pretty serious up until a few years ago. Now it's totally changed. So, for example, a couple of days ago, I I gave a talk uh, to a student-organized group at MIT on Israel-Palestine. There were maybe five or six hundred people, mostly interested and supportive, um, hard to get a critical question. It's changed substantially, just as it did in the case of uh, Vietnam over the years and other issues. What uh, do you, I mean, there is, of course, just momentum to speaking out repeatedly, uh, as you've mentioned many times, just speak the facts as clearly as you can, that tends to sway public opinion. Do you think there's anything else that has uh, propelled the, the change or the openness to broaden the debate over the last few years? On, which, on the Israel-Palestine issue? Yes. Well, first of all, there are other activities that can be carried out, and some of them have been quite effective. They interact with, uh, I mean, activism and education interact. Activism, education, demonstrations, they all, if they're properly designed, contribute to one another. And that's been true to some extent in this case. So, for example, when the uh, recently the Presbyterian Church and uh, later the United Church of Christ have uh, initiated uh, 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 boycott operations against any uh, institutions that are involved in the Israeli occupation. That includes any Israeli businesses and so on involved in the occupation, but it also includes U.S. multinationals uh, which are involved in the occupation. And that's, I think, a very good action for one thing because it's meaningful, but for another thing because it opens the way to discussion, uh, debate, uh, educational programs, bringing, trying to bring, the, bring people to face some of the facts of the issue. Why do we oppose the occupation? What is it like? How does the United States contribute to it? I mean, these, the actions and the educational programs can be, and in this case are, mutually supportive. Uh, but a lot of work over the last years has, in fact, created a kind of a, a groundwork, especially among younger people, of uh, concern and uh, uh, resistance and uh, opposition to uh, the uh, Israeli occupation and U.S. support for it. Uh, by now, it's one of the major issues on campus. That's a huge difference from 10 or 15 years ago. And as you said, you had to have police protection to talk about it. And these things don't happen by themselves. They happen with a lot of work. The Israelis that I've talked to, and again, I'm not, haven't canvassed much of the country, but the Israelis that I've talked to seem to be of the impression that the younger generation is more open to, I think, what I would characterize a, a productive solution 
to this seemingly intractable conflict. But to some degree, it's sort of what they say in the physical sciences, that sometimes just the elder generation has to die off for a new perspective to emerge. What would you say is the current state of, of intergenerational differences, if they exist in Israel between the older and the younger generations? Well, first of all, I think it's almost always true. That's, uh, so take, say, Vietnam again. Uh, the uh, uh, the real, the major thrust of the anti-war movement in the case in Vietnam was uh, younger people and students. Um, there were older people involved, but uh, that was where most of the energy and the thrust was coming from. The same was true on South Africa, South African sanctions and uh, South African actions. And it's true here, too. And it's hard work. Uh, so we take a look at this morning's New York Times. Uh, there's an article uh, on uh, a plan. The government now has a plan to commemorate what they call the 50th anniversary of uh, uh, the Vietnam War. Actually, it's much more than 50 years, but that's the way they define it. And it's going to be a. Com- it's designed as a commemoration of the uh, valor and uh, sacrifices and uh, uh, you know the honor of American of the American soldiers and the American intervention. Well, the article in the Times today was about some of the protest against this by some by historians who say, look, it should be more balanced. Some by former activists, people like Tom Hayden and Dan Ellsberg, saying that the, resist, the opposition to the war ought to also be brought in. What is not discussed is uh, discussion uh, is a very is the main is the major issue that ought to be faced by Americans. That's excluded. It was not just a, an intervention that maybe was too costly for us. It was open aggression, major war crime, worst war crime in the post Second World War era. Outright blatant aggression, violence, and destruction, and not just of uh, Vietnam, but also of Laos and, and Cambodia. That that wasn't even raised, and you cannot, you can barely mention that in ma- in mainstream circles. Uh, you try to do a search someday, uh, say a Google search for the phrase a "U.S. the U.S. invasion of South Vietnam" or "U.S." aggression in Vietnam. You'll find some things, but only by uh, the critics, by dissidents, like I write about it. But um, I doubt if you can find the phrase in the New York Times index. It's like uh, reading, say, a Russian journal today, uh, reading, doing a study of Russian periodicals and journals and looking for the phrase uh, Russian invasion of Afghanistan or Russian invasion of Hungary. I mean, during the communist period, you wouldn't have found it. And that's what it's like here. Yeah, of course, I just did a presentation recently where I was talking about uh, that the uh, America dropped more tonnage of bombs uh, in uh, Cambodia than was dropped by all of the allies in the Second World War. It's the most bombed country in history, and this is a genocidal. And the effects, of course, biologically and even genetically have been long-lasting. So I know we've just got a few more minutes. The same was true in Laos, and the same was true in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I know we've got just a few more minutes uh, and I, I want to uh, give you the platform. Uh, a, a lot of my listeners come from a more abstract philosophical bent, but I really do like to to get sort of practical solutions forward. So I wonder if you could give us a brief roadmap of 
I, I don't have to say practical because I know that that's one of your major concerns uh, of a roadmap forward. Um, of course, as you say, that involves the U.S. that could bring some resolution to the tensions in the Middle East. Well, there's all sorts of tensions in the Middle East. Many. So, for example, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 uh, was a major factor in setting off uh, sectarian conflicts which didn't exist before, um, but they became really uh, extraordinary during the invasion. They've now spread to the whole region. They're tearing the region apart. Uh, The rise of uh, ISIS is one uh, aspect of them. That's one whole range of problems. Another set of problems has to do with Israel-Palestine, and these have different roadmaps. There actually is something called a roadmap for Israel-Palestine. It was proposed by uh, George W. Bush and the other members of what's called the Quartet. The Quartet is uh, the United States, uh, uh, Europe, uh, Russia, and the United Nations, which are supposed to be kind of monitoring the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, back in around uh, about 10 years ago, 2004, I think it was, uh, they proposed a roadmap for solution for resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, you can look it up on the internet. Uh, immediately, the government of Israel announced that they were adding they would accept the roadmap with 14 reservations, and they listed the reservations. You take a look at the reservations; they completely undermined the roadmap. Totally. Uh, end of the roadmap. Try to do a... Uh, the roadmap made some sense. It would have been a... Uh, of course, it, it, it avoided one crucial part. The U.S. must stop its crucial support, its decisive support for uh, Israeli actions. Uh, the United States has been blocking an international settlement of this issue for 40 years. Well, that part was omitted. But other than that, it had reasonable proposals. If you look, you will discover that the Israeli reservations to the roadmap, which undermined it totally, were simply not reported here. In fact, the first time they reached the general American audience was in Jimmy Carter's book, uh, Israel, Peace, or Apartheid. It included the reservations in a, an appendix, but nobody mentioned it in reviews and so on. Well, that's uh, uh, the the method there is of all the problems in the world. This is one of the ones that has the most, the easiest resolution. There is an overwhelming international consensus, includes virtually everyone apart from Israel and the United States, on a diplomatic solution. And the general outlines of it are well known. They were actually uh, brought to the Security Council of the United Nations in 1976 uh, by the uh, three major Arab states, uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, and Jordan. They introduced a resolution calling for a two-state settlement, Israel and Palestine, on the internationally recognized border with, and I'm quoting it now, with guarantees for the right of each state to exist in peace and security 
within secure and recognized borders. Okay, that's the basic framework for a settlement. There have to be more said on uh, the status of Jerusalem, on uh, the refugees, there's other things to talk about, but that's the core of it. Well, what happened to that resolution? The United States vetoed it, so it's out of history. The same thing happened in 1980. U.S. vetoed the resolution. Uh, no time to go through the record, but uh, since then, the U.S. has been consistently blocking a settlement in essentially these terms. Now, of course, the way it's presented here is that the U.S. is an honest broker trying to bring this together the two sides which are battling each other. That's very far from the truth. The U.S. is providing the decisive diplomatic support for Israel's rejectionist position and also the military and economic support. And as long as that continues, Israel's not going to change its policies. Why should they? Yeah, as you pointed out, I mean, the U.S. and Israel are getting what they want through this process of propagandistically cloaked, cloaked, uh, cloaked uh, attrition uh, along the, the West Bank. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that the case could very strongly be made that uh, start looking at the Middle East and start looking at Washington if you're looking for a solution that is generally accepted by the international community to at least the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict. But as long as they're continuing to get what they want, as you say, why would they uh, change? So it really, I think, is up to the American population to educate themselves about these issues and, and find out where they stand, which I think is is pretty clear for most people. I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, I, I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time. And, and thanks, of course, for all of the activism that you've been doing since the 1940s uh, in, in the course of peace and clarity in our moral thinking. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's good to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care.